When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Welcome to the latest episode of the Brighton Rock podcast. The podcast about the beautiful club within the beautiful game. With me, Russell Guyver, and my co-host, Peter Marsh, who's back. Hello, Peter. Hey, Russ. I think you're going to describe yourself as a beautiful man for a minute. <laughs> Absolutely no chance of that. <laughs> but, <laughs> but we have got a, a man who's certainly beautiful in many ways, a club legend, joining us for our second conversation for what will no doubt constitute parts three and four of this Dick Knight special. It is the man himself, Dick Knight. Welcome back, Dick. Good evening, Russ. Good evening, Peter. Good evening, everyone listening. Excellent. We, we've already had some, we're talking off air as well, you've had some feedback at Newcastle away the other day. Um, lots of people seem to be enjoying the podcast, so we're really glad and um, hope everyone will enjoy this conversation and these two parts as well. Um, so, um, yes, it's great to have you back on. We were talking in the past about your your Albion story, your backstory, um, your career, coming and going between the States, uh, the battle against Archer and various other things, trying to get to Withdean as well. Lots to talk about there and still lots more to talk about now. Um, in this episode, what we wanted to do really was to get into Withdean in a bit more detail, talk about um, really how, how you found running the club in such constrictive circumstances, how, how that was. Um, we'll get on to maybe some favourite moments and some bad moments if you want to talk about them later. But, but first of all, just um, once, you, once you've got us back to Withdean, um, which was a fantastic achievement. I missed the um, the six nil game with Darren Freeman, but I was at the friendly um, against Nottingham Forest, which I think was the first game, wasn't it, back there? And there was a real, really big feel good factor. It was a nice, blazing hot, sunny day. I took some friends who were sort of just kind of uh, not not really fans of the Albion, but they were um, interested in the story. Took them along, and and everyone had a great time. And I think. For all the struggles, uh, for all the troubles trying to get planning permission for am- the Amex, which we'll get onto later on down the line, um, we did actually have four promotions in those 12 years. We had some good times. Um, so I'll certainly be asking you about that a bit later on. But first of all, I mean, how, how was it running, running the club at Withdean with those constrictions? You know, the limited capacity, the limited opportunity for commercial opportunities. Um, how was that? Well, um, first of all, Russ, I'll correct you because we never really actually ran the club at Withdean. <laughs> we, <weren't allowed, laughs> we weren't allowed to go there apart from our match day. Um, and even then, if it was an evening game, there was a lot of frantic clearing away in the, for example, the boardroom, the so-called boardroom at Withdean, actually was a children's crash in the daytime. And, um, yeah, unbelievable. You know, Ken Bates, who many people have heard of as being, uh, you know, quite a uh, sort of volatile football club chairman, uh, he came there with Leeds to a game, one eve midweek game, and um, he came in and into this boardroom, you know, while we're still almost clearing away. And he saw he saw all these alphabet figures that had been being used by the kids, you know, an hour or so before, hour and a half or so before. And he <laughs> looked at me, he looked at me, and he looked out at that, and he said, "My God, Dick!" He said, I mean, he actually used a few other words which I can't really repeat here <laughs> uh, to a family audience, but um, 
He said, I knew you had problems. He said, but I don't know it was this bad. <laughs> and he said, um, you know, where is the actual um, boardroom? I said, Ken, this is the boardroom, you know. And he, he was just stupefied that um, we were managing to, you know, we were playing in the championship. That was the first season we got to the championship. So, you know, and there were other wonderful times like that, you know, when Derby County came there. And if you remember the Italian striker, Ravinelli, uh, who was, you know, an international player, very good player. He was out limbering up and um, on the pitch before the game. And he said to their coach, you know, when we get on the bus, go to the stadium. And, um, you know, their coach, whoever it was at that, I can't remember who the coach was, but he said, you know, this is the stadium. This is where we're playing. You know, <laughs> all of a sudden, you know, about three minutes later, Raven Nelly pulled up with a so-called hamstring strain. <laughs> he didn't fancy playing, you know, at the Theatre of Trees. Uh, <laughs> right off the game. But I thought if we could get that working on a regular basis, we could play weakened teams. So if we put you know, sort of slippery grass around the outside of, um, sorry, my daughter's phoning me from America. Um, so, no, I mean, so Ravenelli didn't fancy that. Um, so there were all sorts of ways that, you know, Withdean was the most idiosyncratic ground in in league football history. I mean, I, I'm, I'm, I may have even told the previous episode of this podcast that, I used to call the away end the Worthing end because it virtually was in Worthing. Um, and we should have issued binoculars to all the away fans, you know, to see their end that behind that goal, let alone the further goal in the east end of the ground. Um, but no, there were wonderful times there. But, um, and as you said, Russ, you know, we actually, it was the most successful period in the club's history we had four promotions including three titles in that period you know I never realized obviously <laughs> I thought we'd be there three years at the most we finished up we were there 12 years um fighting all the time for the stadium um but meanwhile you know doing pretty well on the pitch of course in reality playing in the uh, championship we were punching so far above, uh, uh, punching above our weight. But our, our weight was, you know, sort of, um, shall we say, pea shooter size against cannons of the rest of the league. You know, we, the, my budget was one, my playing budget was one sixth of the average in the whole of that league. The average. So, you know, we, we dragged the average down by our one sixth. But we were only one sixth the size. That was because fifty percent of the revenue it was only, you know, six and a half thousand, or it went up slightly to seven. We managed to increase a few more uh, seats, you know, as each season went by and the prolonged uh, the stay became, you know, more prolonged. Um, but it was it was you know we had so many extra costs involved of protecting the area. You know, the stewarding, the no-fly zone, sorry, the no-parking zone, um, and um, all of that, and the subsidies we provided to the fans, you know, in terms of free public transport, uh, coming from a certain area all around, you know, that was included in the price of the ticket. Um, so, you know, but we lost over 50, just over 50%, of our total gate receipts went into these additional costs. So the average, to, to show you the, how, how this one six average was, the average in the league, in the, in the championship is always, the average gate is always driven by certain big clubs, you know. So the average in the league was 18,000, the average attendance. Our average was 6,000. Halve it because of all the extra costs we had, 
which went into, you know, the supporting services specific to Whitney that we, you know, the rules that have been imposed on us by the local council, local authority, all of them which were in a sense necessary, but that reduced equivalent, our equivalent gate receipts to 3,000 compared with 18,000. So there's your one sixth of the budget. That's uh, ignoring all the corporate stuff as well that other, the bigger stadiums have compared to. Yeah. Well, we exactly obviously didn't that. really. You know, we that. we had we had no uh, co- we had some corporate hospitality and people thoroughly enjoyed it because they were all together. There was no luxury of having their own, you know, lounge or their own uh, booth. You know, we had to put everyone in together, and of course, what that did is uh, people, you know, met each other. The first time we had this a group of fans who, who I got to know very well, uh, which Martin called them the odds and sods because they were a group of uh, fans that we had to put together on a table. Um, and some of them, one or two of them knew one or two of the others, but there was about a dozen of them. And uh, Martin came up with a name, odds and sods, which is a great name. And, um, you know, they they, so over the years, as our stay at we've been you know, dragged on, uh, they became quite a corporate group in terms of, you know, helping with charity work for the club and so on. Um, and generally, you know, being great supporters of the team and the club, they used to go to away matches um, as well and caused, always got on well with the home supporters wherever they were. Um but, uh, and they even had their own Albion shirt, which was a, 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 not, not, the team, not the team shirt, but a, a light blue shirt with a seagull crest over it, which was in, emboldened odds and sods. You know, that was their, <laughs> they, they were, it was how they demonstrated their loyalty to, to the club. So, you know, that's the lighthearted side, the downside was as I say not being able to get that with the uh, during the week all the operations had to be carried out in the office in down in Brighton initially in uh, Queen's Road um, and well basically and then round the corner in North Road so it was uh, you know a very clinical sort of non-footballing atmosphere in the offices uh, clearly which didn't help uh, but I think, you know, what was absolutely vital as far as I was concerned, that everyone knew that things would get better. And I'm, you know, I kept driving that thought home uh, that, you know, we're going to we keep improving on the playing side. We're going to get this stadium uh, despite every obstacle put in our way. Uh you know, we are going to get this stadium. I, I, even I would never have dreamt that it would take us, you know, from the last game at the Goldstone in April 97 to the first game at the Amex in, um, you know, August 2011. That was 14 and a half years. I was incredible, if you think about it. Um, no other club has been through that kind of uh, extended trauma uh, exile in, in Gillingham, in, uh, which, you know, understandably, some people just couldn't make that trip or they didn't feel inclined. Uh, either way, we still average nearly 3,000 there. Um, or sorry, in the second season, the first season was below that, was about 2,000. Uh, but as the team gradually began to improve, then we got, but even then, you know, we, people had to make a round trip of roughly 150 miles to go and see the team play at home. So it was ludicrous. I had to get the club back to Brighton. Um, there was no other choice but with Dean, you know, the local residents kicked up a lot of fuss initially. Uh, again, understandable, but, you know, some of them took the their uh, their doom-mongering to ludicrous lengths in terms of, you know, saying there's going to be another Hillsborough disaster or so on, um, which was totally unjust. You know, it was really out of order. Um, and, and, of course, 
by the time we were there, and then we were there year after year rather than just for a couple of years or so, uh, you know, everyone realised that our fans were perfectly well behaved and there was no such, you know, marauding through gardens um, and, you know, generally rampaging around. I may, again, I may have told this story, but um, the first game we played against Mansfield at uh, at Whitbean, the game we won 6-0, all the national press were there in, you know, in big numbers recording this event. And Peter Drury, who I think was writing at the Sunday Telegraph at that time, said that, you know, watching them, normally going to a game, you know, people were all walking along, making quite a lot of noise, chattering away, chatting, you know, there's all a lot of buzz going on. But at Brighton, it's the fans were walking along as if they're, and it's like they're creeping past the headmaster's study. You know, it was like, so there's no, these leafy lanes are, yes, there's a lot of people, but they're not making any noise, you know. They're creeping along uh, to get to the stadium. So, you know, that whole atmosphere was, it, it created a a, a, a a unity. It was unique, definitely. Uh, we, were, we were fighting against everything in terms of, you know, red tape. The authorities, the football authorities did nothing to help us really. Definitely, they didn't. The Football League, they made it more difficult, incredibly. Um, you know, we were against the odds on the pitch because of the limited budget, uh, and we had no ground. So playing at Whitbean, you know, was the only way forward for the club. Uh, I didn't have any alternative. But in fact, what what was built from that, what was engendered from that, was this incredible team spirit on and off the pitch. I mean, the players were part of it as well because they knew. I sat them down when we, a new player came in and said, you know, the biggest game this t- club is playing is off the pitch. No disrespects to you guys. Mm. Um, we're trying to get a, this new stadium that we deserve. Every club should have a decent stadium. This this town, this club, you know, has a, 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 has a potential to bring in 30,000 people. I knew that. And that's why, you know, when we briefed the architect of the stadium, um, I, I was never in, you know, never in my mind that we would apply, that we would design a stadium for 10,000. It was always 30,000 plus, you know, because I knew the potential the club had. And I knew that if we built the stadium and we had a decent team, they would come. You know, yeah. people would come. And, of course, that's been proven absolutely correct. Yeah. But you can see how there would have been a, 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 a picture being built up by maybe some people locally, definitely a lot of people uh, nationally, about the club, should it have such a big stadium? Because you're seeing very small crowds at Gillingham. Actually, of course, those are very impressive numbers because it's two to 3,000 away fans effectively in a season where every single game is an away match. So which is much more of a budgetary demands than a normal season. So yep. those are actually brilliant figures. And at Whitdean, you had all the things you've just described, you know, having to tread on eggshells. You don't have any corporate facilities. Most of the stand is, is uh, most of the stadium, for want of a better word, is, uh, is uncovered. It's impossible virtually to get a good atmosphere going. The away fans are in a different postcode, as we've sort of alluded to. <laughs> you know, all, all of those things, you know, actually six or 7,000 or whatever it was that was turning up there, is actually pretty impressive. But of course, looking at the bigger picture, people are thinking, well, they're getting six or 7,000 after this long wait to get back to, to, to Sussex for two years. Are they really going to be able to need, are they going to need more than about 10, 11, 12,000? And, and even dear old, um, Paul Welsh, um, um, rest in peace. You know, he, he's, um, he was convinced at our Seagulls Ever London meetings. He traipses this, this, um, this, um, document out that he printed out of our statistical our um our attendance statistics over a number of years saying that there was a long period since we'd last had a crowd over a certain amount and he was convinced we wouldn't get the sort of figures that we obviously very very convincingly proved we would get later well, on paul i love paul you know and yeah. I, you know he played a great part in the battle to overthrow archer 
Uh, but he was wrong there. And I remember, him, oh, yeah. <laughs> you know, I, I remember him making this case. And I said, Paul, I'm older than you. And I've been there when we've had, you know, 31,000, 32,000. I was in the biggest crowd of all at the Goldstone, which will, you know, the way the Amex is, is still going to be a record Brighton crowd at home yeah. is going to be at the Goldstone ground. Not at the Amex, uh, but I was in that crowd in, you know, in 1960 and, um, you know, 36,000. So, you know, I knew that if we had a decent team, people would come, you know, because we had such a large catchment area. Um, and I was convinced that if we had a good team, you know, we would definitely get the crowds. But, and of course, I had all the stats going back to when I was a kid, you know, when I was, well, when I was a kid, when I was in my teenage years, when, you know, we played in front of, you know, in league, in division three, in front of 25,000 people. So there was a, there was a long-term uh, heritage of the team being well supported uh, through the dark years prior to the real war years, when the team fluctuated badly, went up brilliantly, you know, chairman, um, whose name has escaped me at the moment. Um, oh, uh, Mike Bamber. Mike, Mike, of course, yeah, mm-hmm. Mike Bamber. There we went into the Premiership, as it was well, not called that then, but it, is, it was the equivalent of the Premiership, Division One. Uh, but then after that, you know, we plummeted down the leagues. And uh, but I still knew, I was certain that if we had a decent, because during that whole period of fallow period in the club's history uh you know after the three or four years in in the old division one and the great team led by brian horton you know including people like lawrenson and ward uh i mean what a super team they are they were um and you know but the investment in the team went down hugely from that but i knew that if we had a stadium you know, my whole strategy for the club when I took it over was that we will get, we will get to the elite level of football because we will have a stadium that will allow us to generate revenue in order to buy good players. You know, that was, that was it. I knew if we had the stadium and the big problem, of course, was the resistance to it locally, initially by the council. Uh, but then they, they saw the benefits of it. And then we had, you know, three and a three and a half years of public inquiries to go through. It, it was just unprecedented. The, you know, the the the, uh, the problems that we confronted while I was trying to also, you know, put together a decent team with, albeit some very very good managers that I was able to uh, bring into the club. It's just quite, it is quite amazing how you attracted the names, manager names that you did considering the situation. I mean, the likes of Ricky Adams, Peter Taylor, McGee, Steve Koppel, all things considered what, you know, where we were playing and the situation we were in to get managers like that, you know, them. And then obviously for, for Tony Blue to then bring in Gus Poyet as well after that, who obviously wasn't necessarily experienced, but was a big name as well to get all of those guys along while we were playing at Wifteen was frankly amazing. Hey, Drew Scott here, and I'm Jonathan Scott, reminding you that life's better with a home policy from American Family Insurance. They can help you get just the right protection at just the right price and help you save when you bundle home and auto. Kind of like Goldilocks and the Three Bears. It'll be just right for you. We love a custom build. American Family Insurance. Insure carefully. Dream fearlessly. Get a quote and find an agent at AmFam.com. Products not available in every state. Visit AmFam.com to learn how discounts may apply to you. American Family Mutual Insurance Company, S.I. and its operating company, 6000 American Parkway, Madison, Wisconsin. Well, I think, you know, I was able to persuade those managers that that I had a vision for the club and that um, and when I gave a lot of them knew some of the background of the club. I mean, when I, for example, the first manager I brought in after Steve Grit was Brian Horton, who knew mm. the club inside out, obviously. And that was one of the reasons I brought him, because he'd been a playing legend. And uh, so that was not difficult to get Brian to come in, um, albeit we were playing on a shoestring, you know, with no budget or anything. 
Um, but the, you know, the, the vision of where I knew we could be was what, I, and I'm a decent, you know, salesman in terms of being able to persuade them that it was worth them having Brighton on their CV because even if we went only went from League Two to League One, that would be on their CV. Mm-hmm. You know, and of course we had we had um you know a lot of promotions in that period. You know, we as, as you know Russ mentioned earlier, but we had four uh, promotions, three titles in twelve years at the yeah. Whitney, which is you know the most successful period in the club's history. In terms of in terms of league, you know, achievement. Yeah, I mean, it's, to be honest, considering so I started watching in 1990, and barring a playoff final the first year I was watching, it was as you were saying, all downhill from there. And it, literally, the, the first promotion at the uh, with Dean was my first promotion ever watching Brighton. It was, you know, so I, with Dean was. I mean, I've seen us promoted now five times, and four of those have been at with Dean. So I'll always hold it in, you know, kind of. My happy memories. My first season ticket was there as well. It was, I got a season ticket the first season. That was the first time I'd had one. And yeah, I think to the whole generation growing up watching Albion, like my sort of age, it was the first success I'd ever seen. You know, it was so watching Brighton before that was only like relegation or struggle or whatever. And suddenly we won two championships in a row. I mean, that was amazing. Yeah. Well, you know, um, we were on a roll. The players were so many strong characters in that squad of players. Mickey, it was Mickey Adams' team. <clears throat> um, but you know, there, there were some real strong characters in that team. Not just captain, you know, Paul Rogers, but all the way through the spine of the team. And um, you know, and they hit it off together. The st- playing style was attractive. We had a a supreme player to up top in Bobby Zamora. Bobby, you know, was able to hold the ball up and bring other players into it, as well as scoring over 30 goals in two successive seasons, which takes a bit of doing in any standard of football, let alone league football. I always knew that he'd play in the Premiership, and I knew that he was good enough to play for England. His Because of injuries, his career um, at that level was very limited. But he was good enough to play, you know, for England. And uh, that's how good he was. And he learned his craft really at Brighton because, you know, he stayed with us for three seasons. Uh, I was able to persuade him in the, into the fourth season uh, and his, his father that being in the championship would be uh, well worth it, you know, into that third season. Um I'd had an offer from Everton for him in the post in the close season after we won League One, and uh, I said to his dad and him that you you know you need a season in the Championship to hone your skills and your experience. You will go to the Premiership definitely. I have no doubt about that. It that probably won't be with us because we won't get to the Premiership until we have a stadium. But I'd like. I'd wish that you would be with us when we went to the premiership but of course that did happen in a in a roundabout way because Bobby came back and played for us in the in the premiership so that was great you know he's a a very highly respected you know um, person in football Bobby and uh, he he certainly set standards at Brighton uh, in terms of you know, he was a leader in his own way. He wasn't club captain, but he set an example, an aspirational example for other players. He got a lot out of other players in the team because they wanted to, they were inspired by him. You know, there's no doubt about that. And How hard uh, did you have to work to get Bristol Rovers to get to let them go? Because I must admit, I didn't think he'd be back after we loaned him. He looked so good. He looked out of our league a little bit. Of course, he didn't... Um, the manager at Bristol Rovers, who was a, a, a fellow called Ian Holloway, who you will have heard of, um, and it, my dealings with him and his chairman at Bristol Rovers just showed you that everyone in football can make mistakes, you know, even, you know, reputed managers, because all along, he, Ian Holloway, first of all, never reckoned Bobby as a striker, you know, 
he went back after scoring six goals in six games with us. And we wanted to keep him on on loan for the rest of the season. Bobby, being a very good professional, said, no, I want to go back to my club. You know, my club is Bristol Rovers. And I'm sure Mr. Holloway will have seen that I've scored six goals in six games. And he went back and he still didn't get in the first team. He never played in the first team, only once ever, right? And that was that he came on as a sub in a friendly match or something. And so I put in this offer at the end. So he went back to Bristol Rovers, didn't get in the first team. <clears throat> at the end of the season, I said to Mickey and the board, you know, I'm going after Zamora. You know, we've got to get into this club. And I made an offer at the end, right at the end of the season, you know, just as it was after the final game for 60,000, which, you know, was a lot of money for a division, a League Two club, because that's where we were, to pay to a League One club, you know, which is where they were at that time. They wanted, believe it or not, a quarter of a million for someone who hadn't played in their first team because they had 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 a succession of strikers and um, that they'd sold for that sort of money. So they kind of thought that, you know, with that heritage of being able to produce strikers, uh, that they could get that. And I said to the chairman, Jeff Dunsford, you've got to be mad, Jeff. You know, we're, we're in League Two. We're not paying 250000 <laughs> So I said, Mickey, you know, I said, we're out of it. You know, we're, we're, not, we're not going to go beyond above that figure. Um, 60. I said to Mickey, they will be back during the close season. We go all through the close season and no sign of any approach back from Bristol Rovers. We played a friendly, that one friendly we were allowed to play a week before the season started. Oh, yeah. Right. And <laughs> Mickey comes, we played. Um, I thought it was not Forest, but it may have been. Anyway, Gary Hart, who Mickey wanted to play wide on the right played centre-forward and scored two goals in that game. And we drew 2-2 with, I think it was Forrest. But they were in, and he was up against Des Walker, the England international. The Mickey came into the boardroom after the game, this, you know, the so-called boardroom, the Whitby, and said, brilliant. What happened to Zamora, Mr Chairman? <laughs> I said he'd be in, we'd, we'd have him, you know, pre-season. So he said, yeah, great, you know, we'll, He's not here, and I'm going to have to play Gary uh, Hart up front, which I don't want to do. I said, Mick, we've got a week to go before the season starts. If I don't hear from Jeff Dunsford Monday morning, I will phone him Monday afternoon, which will put me at a huge disadvantage because I'm chasing them. That's how it works, you know. He, 10 o'clock on the Monday morning, my phone goes, it's Jeff Dunsford on the phone. <laughs> Are you still interested in young Zamora? So me being canny said, I, I'm not sure really. I don't know. You know, I'm trying to bite his arm off, really. I said, I'm going to have to talk to my manager about it. <laughs> right. So give me 10 minutes, 15 minutes. <clears throat> I know he's at the track. I'll ring him and find out. Of course, I never rang Mickey because I knew, like I, I, you know, we both wanted him desperately. So I went back to Jeff Dunsford and he and I said, "Yeah, Mickey, you know, Mickey Adams, you know, wants to give the, the young guy a chance." So he said to me, "Well, okay, the, the price is as I thought, two hundred and fifty thousand. So I said, "Why are you wasting my time?" You know, I'm the chairman of a League Two club. We can't. We haven't got two hundred and fifty thousand to pay on this play on uh, spend on this player who's never been in your first team. I said, how can you charge? Want that sort of money? I said, I'm prepared to pay a hundred thousand. Right, that is the limit. He said, well, I'm not sure. You know, we we, you know, I said. He said, he said, I'm not actually sure we want to sell him. I said, well, why are you wasting my time? So he said, well, the manager thinks he might have a 
have a future as a left-sided midfield player. (laughs) 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 Because it just shows you even these, you know, illustrious managers, and even Holloway had quite a good reputation, they can make them amazing mistakes. So I said, look, let me have a word. Can I have a word to, to Ian Holloway? So I said, he said, I don't know. Of course, give, I said, give me, give me his number. I rang Holloway. Hello, Mr. Chairman. You know, he says with his Bristol accent. He said, I said, Bobby Zamora, um, Ian, my manager, oh, Mickey, he said, yeah, Mickey, uh, good manager. You know, he's going like that. He's cut and quick. You know, he said, I said, Zamora, is he figuring your place for playing this season? And he said, I might want to try left side midfield, but not as a striker. Don't see him as a striker. <laughs> <laughs> like Bobby Zamora is the guy. <laughs> I said, well, my manager is probably wrong, Mickey. He's probably wrong, but he wants to try him as a striker. You know, so I said, come on, Ian. You don't really, he's not going to be in your squad, but let us have him. You know, we, you're probably right. Mickey's probably wrong. <laughs> you know, he said, oh, all right, you know, I'll, I'll speak to the captain, the chairman. So I said, don't worry, I'll speak to your chairman, but you're happy to get him to stay. He said, Gary, yeah. he said, um, he's not going to be a better striker, though. That was his final words. Thank you for giving him a chance, for Mickey a chance to make him into a striker. You know, and, and so thank you very much. I went and said, Ian's happy with it. He'll, he'll confirm that to you. Um, and, you know, we're going to um, probably play him as a striker, not as a midfielder. <laughs> Unbelievable, then, isn't it? <laughs> I then put the phone down and rang Mickey Adams, who knew nothing about conversations, right? And when I told him, uh, make room on the treatment table because we've, we've got a player coming in for a medical afternoon man. And he said, who? Oh, what do you mean? I said, his name's Zamora. He's a young lad from <laughs> Mickey dropped the phone virtually. <laughs> he was so delighted. And that's how Bobby came to the club. You know, and it was brilliant. He came and... Uh, the rest is, as they say, you know, it's a cliche, but in this case, it really was history. It was club history because he never looked back. When he came, he started scoring goals immediately. And, you know, basically the whole team who, who played in League Two that season and won the league was pretty much, without with a few changes, the same team that almost stayed up in the championship two seasons later. You know, well, the, exactly. That squad was, stayed it, the same, didn't it? it was like, the hmm. team that played in League One the following season was almost identical. It was the same team. We won that. We won League Two, and then we won League One. You know, and, and that's how good they were. And uh, and then almost well, stayed up again the next year. One we were one game away from staying in the championship as well. Yeah. But we were only and, one game away from staying in the championship, weren't we? Exactly. And if Zamora. So that was the season where I'd persuaded him and his dad to stay. You know, if he hadn't been out with a bad injury for virtually half the first half of the season, he still scored 14 goals that season with only playing half the season. I'd have no doubt that if he'd uh, been fit all season, we would not have got relegated. I also would have had... Steve Koppel earlier as manager. And, mm. you know, under Steve Koppel, in, when he joined us during that season, we were a top 10 team. You know, the results that Steve was able to generate immediately uh, coinciding very closely with Bobby coming back from injury, uh, you know, we started playing and uh, winning, you know, games that previously we'd been losing. So it was a, a very interesting season because Bobby just, he just, you know, he just dreamily 
played in at, at that level without any changing any of his demeanour, any of his technique. He had the technique. He could hold the ball up. He was good in the air. You know, um, his reading with Paul Watson was was almost paranormal. Free you know, kicks. Their, their, their reading of each other. You know, I mean, a left-footed right back is very unusual in football, and we made real capital out of that with Bobby. You know, with Paul delivering the ball near post, not far post, and Bobby breaking away from defenders and often just, you know, heading the ball in the net with no one near it or tapping it in the net because they didn't go, they didn't follow him. He came round behind the back of them and went to the other side of the goal. I'm sure I might have read or heard Bobby say that Paul Watson had the best left-footed player or left foot he'd ever played with or something like that, even though yeah. in Premier League with loads of very high-quality players, Paul Watson was the best left Paul could deliver a ball on a sixpence, you know, and that's what Bobby, you know, loved because he, he knew that if he went into that space in the right channel, right-hand channel, that Paul would find him. And, um, you know, we scored a lot of goals, uh, both Bobby scoring but also making goals from that position, you know, where he squared the ball across the box. But... Um, yeah, I do find it funny, though, in things like that, because surely the scouts, a bit like with Pascal Grosch's turn and that sort of thing, you'd have thought the scouts would pick it up and at some point say, watch out for this, but they just didn't seem to be able to pick it up at all. It was... Well, we, when the first game we played at, in, that, in, that, in the championship that season, 2-0-2-0-3, Bobby was, had stayed, and we were playing away at Burnley, who'd come fourth in the league the previous year. And here we were, the new kids on the block. Um, we went to Turf Moor and absolutely outplayed Burnley. And Bobby scored uh, a goal. He had a goal disallowed um, from, a, from a Watson free kick where he you know, disallowed for offside when he wasn't offside. Uh, and... and you know that team was a was a a very good team. We had some very good players in that team, um, but you know, unfortunately, you know, Martin Hinshelwood was the manager. He did his best, Martin, but he relied too much on the young players. You know, not a good time to bring in three or four young players together. Mm. Bring in one or two, you know, maximum. Uh, are in a higher league. All the players are in a higher league, um, and then to have three or four, you know, young players coming into the team as well, which Martin wanted to do, uh, didn't really work. And uh, it began to it began to affect the senior players in the in the team, like Danny Cullip and so on. Um, so we went into a bad spin, tailspin, of losing games. Um, anyway. Um, that's all part of the Withdean years. And, uh, you know, Withdean is a, no, one, no Albion fan should ever forget the role that Withdean played in the history of the team. Because as you say, Peter, uh, you know, we had four promotions in that, in that, from that venue and many good times and, you know, superb cup results there against Man City, for example, in 2008. Another team who definitely didn't fancy with Dean. Hmm? And another team who definitely didn't fancy with Dean. No, exactly. Exactly. Um, I mean, Joe, the Brazilian guy who looked like he was like, yeah. anywhere else in the world. Well, this is the thing with that era. What, what I love about that was, I mean, Dick, you inherited Steve Britt from through Brian Hawes and Jeff Wood. We got into Mickey Adams just before the, with Dean opened. And that period just coincided so well. You had this, you had Gallo's humour. You had backed against the wall. You had a manager in Nicky Adams and a set of players under him who really epitomised what we needed at the time, which was this backs against the wall attitude, this camaraderie and battling. You look at at the team, don't you? Kuipers, you've got Cullip, you've got Carpenter, you've got um, obviously later on Bobby's Mora joined as well. That was a, a real core. And there was a lot of characters there in that team. And I think we forged most of that success, I think, through having those characters and some later characters that came into the equation, Guy Butters and so on. Um, 
and, and I, for me, it just there was a lot of happy times with Dean, despite the, ironically, despite the the overall bigger picture being a stressful one. Um, yeah, it seemed to rain every week. We had we had a lot of funny stories though. There's um, an avid listener to the show, Keith. Hello, Keith, if you're listening, he's a great guy, Keith Tompkins, and he's um. I remember he used to go, he got a bit of a weak bladder and he'd go and have a, go to the loo on about 35 minutes every game. And he said, do you know what, sort it, I'll just go and get all the teas in. So he'd be buying about eight or nine teas for everyone. At one point he phoned in the order and, um, yeah, we had people buying and we're saying, oh, anyone else want a tea? You know, about 40, 50 people around us all laughing. You know, we'd had stories like that. There was the pitch invasion with the guy with the wheelchair getting his, Wheel stuff in the pitch, and you had yeah, a, yeah, a guy, Rocket Man. Yeah, there's Rocket Man. You had a guy getting kicked out. We had a false leg that came off at one point, and mate, yeah, just all of those stories. But but what we did, I mean, that's obviously for the fans. But what we did on the pitch, um, for me, I, I, as Peter said, load of great managers, and I think um, what also epitomised that era was in itself was you, Dick. You were very much. You said you, you could sell the club very well. And you certainly could. And you seem to be in the public eye disproportionately for the status that we were at in terms of our league position. And I think I really, it seemed to me, it really did seem to help um, elevate us in the public eye and allow us to, A, to get those kind of managers in and some of those kind of players, but also to maybe help our cause in the, in the longer term for getting a permanent home. Well, it became a, a national story, the, the Brighton story. Yeah, um, the battle, you know, against Archer became a national story because, uh, as Paul Haywood, you know, a very good friend of mine and a Daily Telegraph writer, uh, and sports journalist of the year several times, but who's, um, you know, local guy, real Albion fan. Yeah. He, he used a phrase once that, you know, the Archer, uh, saga, you know, was a, a parable for modern football because it was one of the he was Archer was one of the first people who got control of a football club and was not interested in the actual team you know in itself he was only interested in the club's assets which were mainly the Goldstone ground and there it was on a prime piece of real estate in Hove and that's all he was interested in and uh you know, he, the fans initially rose up against him. He paid lip service to, you know, listening to what they had to say, but he was really not, he wasn't going to do anything, uh, only if it suited him. Um, and, you know, it, because then I joined the battle, I, you know, launched a proper battle against him. Um, it became a, a story of, you know, a, a fan who's the chairman against this <laughs> a northern oligarch, we could say, um, who was not in the slightest bit interested in the outcome of how the team played, which was one of the reasons why we went down further and further when he was in charge, um, only interested in the business proposition. And it was, I mean, as a result of that, you know, it became a national story. I was actually on Newsnight three times in the space of a few months. It was, it was, you know, they were seeing it as the time when television was really getting its grips into football. You know, the huge potential of top-level football. And here's a little club called Brighton <laughs> fighting against that momentum of big football. And, you know, so I was cast in the role of this, you know, Pied Piper of Hamlin who was coming along to try and, you know, overthrow the um, the local sheriff and the local, you know, uh, owner of the big mansion on the hill sort of thing. And um, so it be, but it was a, a story that was very much uh, the, the media got hold of in a big way because they could, you know, it, it, the signs were there that other <clears throat> clubs were going to have this type of problem. And it was all to do with the assets of the club and the potential of the club being valued through the value of television audiences, right? And I knew some, I knew a lot about that because I came from the media world myself. 
<clears throat> so, um, but it, it was a an incredible time because Archer, as I say, he, he was only involved in Brighton because it was a, a deal that he managed to um, manoeuvre with his mate, Greg Stanley, you know, who was the local guy. Um, and Archer, you know, became a friend of him because they worked together or they were in the, in the same company. And Archer saw an opportunity, got rid of all the other directors who gave them their money back. Um, and so all of a sudden he's got control of the club. And then they started changing the articles of association of the club uh, to their benefit. And, um, you know, I mean, I always, but Lottie was nothing to do with any of that. He was just a puppet. You know, the real villain of the piece was Archer. And, uh, you know, he he needed to be taken down um, in whatever way was possible. And uh, it was only going to be money that did it, uh, despite all the the other type of protests. Um, but even then, it wasn't just money. It was the arbitration process, mediation process, that David Davis at the FA um, commissioned when it became clear that he was just... Arch was just deliberately prevaricating over issues that where he'd agree to meet a deal with he'd agree something with me uh, and then one would be say opening the club's books to due diligence which is what you need to do if you're taking over another a business and then he then he would so our accountants would go to <clears throat> his office and then he wouldn't allow them in stuff like that. I mean, it was just, it just went on and on and on. And he was always going back on what he'd agreed. Um, And he just thought he could see me off. That was the point. He thought he could just, that I'd lose interest. I would just give up, you know. Uh, But he he counted, he took me for granted in a way that, you know, was not going to happen. I wasn't going to give up. And uh, so... You know, we fought this ridiculous battle over, you know, getting on for a year. Uh, and he was still had his sticky fingers on the club. And then David Davis, uh, who was then the executive director of the uh, communications director of the FA, uh, had seen what was going on at Bright and felt that the FA should take a role because the Football League weren't interested in doing anything, you know. All they did was impose a ludicrous performance bond on me and the club. You know, when we went to Gillingham, and we had to go to Gillingham because the club had been allowed to sell the ground. Uh, So we had to go to Gillingham. And then what did the Football League do? (coughs) They imposed a £500,000 performance bond on the club, which I had to pay... And it sat in a bank account in the Football League when a half a million pounds is a lot of money today, let alone 25 years ago. You know, when that money should have been used to help the club, the Football League came up with this bright idea that we'll take half a million quid off him, you know, off the club and and, uh, store it in our bank account. And unless they come back to, you know, to Brighton within three years. Yeah, I remember we were talking about that on the, the other episode, and it really is ludicrous. Again, we talk about adverse, against adversity, and that really does sum it up, doesn't it? Also, you mentioned taking um, Archer down. <laughs> Sounds quite dramatic. Sounds like a Hollywood movie, actually. Um, I, I mean, and that on that subject, um, I mean, I'm, I'm not sure about high Why didn't that. you, says, <laughs> says Russ? Yeah. Well, I've, I've been more diplomatic. No, but I mean, high concept action blockbusters is probably not. But there should have should have been a documentary about this, shouldn't there? I mean, what a story. Um, no one's ever really done one, have they? They've been to DVDs, there's been accounts told, but not really an out and out cinematic release documentary. A lot, there's a lot of lot of taste for that nowadays as well. When you go, when you go through from that period to mm. you know through. You know, me being able to eventually prize his hand off the club and then, then save the club and then start rebuilding the club. And now where, and where Tony's taken, I mean, I was in charge for 12 years. Um, and, and Tony's taken it on from there. And of course, when we got 
promotion to the Premier League, that was almost exactly 20 years after I'd taken over. So the media got, you know, saw that as a, an amazing story. Um, and, you know, yeah, I mean, it is a, it's, it's a real drama of, of, of a story, of a sports story that shows, you know, from the depths of despair to, um, you know, to, well, we're in, we're in la la land, so to speak, <laughs> in the sense that keeping the know, film references the going. <laughs> we are consolidating ourselves in the, in the premiership. Uh, we could do with a few points right now, but you know, we are, the progress that has been made in, in the club, you know, since we've been in the premiership is steady. Uh, we need to, you know, press on, but I think that, you know, it's being done very well. Uh, and, uh, you know, so that whole story is, is really an amazing story of what can happen in sport <clears throat> and the power of sport, you know, don't forget the community side of all this, which I was very strong on about giving something back to our community. And, uh, you know, so that's another aspect of this. And it is quite incredible that sports teams in the rest of the world do not do anything like we do in English football, you know, with our communities. Um, you know, there's nothing like this in America. In you know, those NFL teams, the baseball teams, they have big followings at home. You know, they play, well, obviously baseball is in a small, it's a smaller stadium relatively, but you know, the NFL stadiums are all, um, <clears throat> you know, holding 70,000 plus. Um, and you know, there is, uh, nowhere near that. Sort of, there's, there's virtually no away supporters at those games. And often the distances are immense, obviously, but often they're not. You know, you, um, a New York team playing in Boston is only a couple of hundred miles. It's like going up to, you know, Sheffield or something. Mm. Going down to Philadelphia from New York, hundred odd miles, Baltimore. So there's, you know, they're short distances, a lot of them. Obviously going from the East Coast to the West Coast is much more, but they have no community system where um, coming out from fans, you know, going to away games is the whole role of the community in the, the club, in the community, which we've taken uh, to a new level in, in, in England. Uh, and that's unique in the, in the world. Um, and I'm very proud that the Albion has been a leader of that. Absolutely. And I think that's a very good note to end the first part of tonight's conversation, actually. Oh, that's a, a nice rounded point there, Dick. So I think we'll stop, um, stop the first part there and um, we'll resume in a moment after a little bit of a tea break, shall we? OK. <laughs> And so concludes the third part of our four-part special with Dick Knight, which is the first half of our second conversation that we've had with him. Um, we've really enjoyed his company. Thank you very much to Dick for joining us. And we'll have the fourth part coming hot on its heels in the next day or two. Now, if you have been enjoying listening to this podcast and you haven't already done so, would you be able to review us and rate us online? That would be great. If you can go to Apple, if you do listen on there, and hit the five stars and write a review, all of that helps with the algorithms and will be very much appreciated. It will put us up the rankings and maybe help us to get more exciting guests on the show. Also, if on any of the other platforms that you may listen to, whether it be Spotify or any of the other smaller ones, if there's any review options there, please do the same. Anything you can do will help us and would be very, very much appreciated. Also, we are now signed up to Patreon, which is a system where you can subscribe for as little as £1 a month to donate towards your favourite podcasts. So if you did want to support us uh, financially with as modest or as much an amount as you would like, you can do so by going to www.patreon.com forward slash Brighton Rock Pod. That's Patreon spelt P-A-T-R-E-O-N. And the full address, www.patreon.com forward slash Brighton Rock Pod. If you can help us, fantastic. If you can't, no problem at all. We will keep all of our material 
free to air and free to access so you won't have to pay to access anything it's simply a donation option if you can help us with that superb but either way round we hope you're all still continuing to enjoy listening to the podcast and we will have our next one the fourth part of dick knight's chat with us coming up very soon in the meantime stand or fall up the albion sports social podcast network